People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we are on 101.9 High FM. It's Friday, so we've got books for the next hour. A long list of great books that we'll be talking about. All the books that are going to be discussed today on the show have all been posted on our Facebook page. So go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, like us so you can get our regular updates, and then look at the posts for today's show and for all the shows that we've given over the last two and a half years. You'll see pictures of the covers of the books that we're going to be discussing today with a short little blurb. And if you only hear part of the show, you can get the rest of the show from the pictures on on our, our Facebook page. And when you're going shopping for books, use our Facebook page as a resource to find the best books that are available. Starting off with a book called Transcription by Kate Atkinson. Now, Kate Atkinson is a lady who doesn't really need much of an introduction when it comes to people who love books because she's written quite a lot of really great books, both commercial bestsellers and critically acclaimed novels. She, her first novel was Behind the Scenes at the Museum, but in the last few years she's written a few books that have totally, totally galvanized the reading public. Life After Life, which won the South Bank Sky Arts Literature Prize and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize, and it was both voted Book of the Year for the Independent Booksellers Associations on both sides of the Atlantic. She's also won the Costa Novel Award, and her latest book, Transcription, is out now. So we start off with a quote towards the end of the book to give you a sense of the playfulness that Kate puts into her writing. Come now, quite enough of exposition and explanation. We're not approaching the end of a novel, Miss Armstrong, says a minor character as we approach the end of Kate Atkinson's new novel, The Second World War and the Self-Conscious Tricks of Fiction. These are the twin themes that shaped her two most recent award-winning books. I mentioned Life After Life and also A God in Ruins. Transcription, her latest book, continues this exploration of the lies and inventions that make up life, particularly during a time when all prior certainties, including identity, have been upended. Juliet Armstrong has more than her share of such lies. Recruited to the Secret Service at the beginning of the war, this is in Britain, she has learned to shift between various names and persona. Here's another quote just to show this idea. And then there was Juliet Armstrong, of course, who some days seemed like the most fictitious of them all, despite being the real Juliet. But then what constituted real? Wasn't everything, even this life itself, just a game of deception? Juliet is less obviously at the mercy of authorial tricks than previous protagonists in Kate Atkinson's books, Ursula Todd and her brother Teddy, respectively the protagonists of Life After Life and A God in Ruins. But the inventions she inhabits are created for her by others, mostly her male handlers at MR5, all of whom appear to be living fiendishly complex double or triple lives themselves. In the aftermath of war, trying to locate the source of an anonymous threat, Juliet finds the multiple deceptions she has practiced 
and had practiced upon her accumulate to create a creeping paranoia in which, another quote, things are seldom what they seem, as one man remarks, quoting Gilbert and Sullivan, another quote, she was starting to see him everywhere. That's how people went mad. She remembered seeing gaslight during the war. In 1940, Juliet is employed by MR5 to transcribe recordings of meetings in a bugged flat between a group of fascist sympathizers and a man named Godfrey Toby, whom the fifth columnists believe is a Gestapo agent, but is actually a British spy monitoring his informers. Toby, who is based on a historical character, is a shadowy figure often to be found emerging from the mist whose fate becomes entangled with Juliet's through unexpected tragedy. The second strand of the narrative, set in, the 19, in set in 1950, begins when Juliet, now working for the BBC, encounters Toby again, and his reappearance in her life seems to trigger a series of reckonings for the lies she told during the war and is possibly still telling. This idea of consequences and of every choice exacting a price later runs like a watermark through transcription, as it did through both Life After Life and A God in Ruins. At times the novel is guilty of making its historical parallels a little too emphatic. Here's another quote. The future was coming nearer, one relentless goose step after the next. Julius could st- Juliet could still remember when Hitler had seemed like a harmless clown. No one was amused now. But Atkinson's great gift is for presenting the mundanity of ordinary life with raw detachment, even in the midst of unprecedented trauma. Juliet's inner commentary channels a gloriously British flavour of stoical humour, finding the absurd in the tragic, even as she upbraids herself for being too flippant. The main story's book ended by two short sections set in 1981 as Juliet casts a dying eye over her life. The year is significant. A royal wedding is imminent, and with it, a new groundswell of patriotism. The question of sacrifice in the name of patriotism is one every character has to face, even as they must also define what England and its values means to them. So this is Transcription by Kate Atkinson. It's a great read on on so many different levels. It's a great spy story, a thriller. It's a novel about playing tricks within the, the form of the novel, the format of the novel. It's classic Kate Atkinson. It's available. It's Transcription. And we'll be back with more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Our second book to review today is called Heroes, and it's by Stephen Fry. It's actually the second book in his, so far, it's a two-volume series, retelling the Greek myths. The first book, Mythos, came out last year, and that very much focused on the, the, the foundation mythologies of ancient Greece, where the the world came from and the Greek gods and goddesses and the Titans all came from and while they're all locked in mortal combat. Heroes moves the focus from the gods to humans. Now, not many people study Greek these days. It used to be part of a classic education, but even Latin is almost, you know, in South Africa, an extinct subject. So Greek 
long, long extinct in our education system. But reading through Stephen Fry's Heroes is a reminder to the reader that we've actually missed out on quite a bit of an education in terms of Western civilization. He's, he unashamedly places his retelling in the ancient world, but with modern idioms and points of references. His first book, as I mentioned, Mythos, dealt with the Greek creation myths. The gods begot the Titans, who in turn begat Zeus and the other Olympian gods, who in turn, with help from Prometheus's pottery skills, created man. Heroes, his second book in the series, deals with what Fry calls our teenage years, where humanity both fears and worships these parental gods, but also reckons it can go toe-to-toe with them. What makes this assortment of heroes, each with their own section and sub-chapters, that's and some of those heroes are Perseus, Hercules, Bellerophon, Orpheus, Jason, Atalanta, Oedipus, and Theseus. What makes them ring louder than the spandex-clad types that the late Stan Lee has left us with is their fundamental flaws, the things that mark them out as utterly human while also being able to achieve these otherworldly tasks. It is how like us they are that makes these tragedies and triumphs sing. Similarly, they are framed by a cast of immortals that are petulant, fragile of ego, and often cruelly vindictive, traits readily visible in some of the most powerful people in today's politics. The threads are made apparent even where Fra declines to point them out in his litany of wonderful little footnotes. Hercules is something of a Thor type, tough, handsome, heroic, but titchy and prone to ill temper. Marvel fans will understand the relevance of a god of death called Thanatos. Meanwhile, Atalanta, the only female to qualify as a hero here in the book, is the abandoned baby on the mountainside who is rescued and raised by Mother Nature and goes on to become the Tarzan or Wonder Woman blueprint, formidable, fierce and awesome. Elsewhere, Fry likens the the words of the oracle to Hercules to those of Yoda, with Orpheus, the godlike musician, who could bring the savage beast to heel with nothing more than a few lyre plucks and a sung melody. Fry goes to town, listing off a who's who of comparable cultural elite de- deities that range from Mozart to Hendrik, Kendrick Lamar. In order to show you the style, I'm going to actually read that little part of the book. This is from... Stephen Fry's Heroes, Mortals and Monsters, Quests and Adventures, a retelling of ancient Greek mythologies. This is the chapter on Orpheus. It's titled The Power to Soothe the Savage Beast. Orpheus was the Mozart of the ancient world. He was more than that. Orpheus was the Cole Porter, the Shakespeare, the Lennon, and McCartney, the Adele, Prince, Luciana Pavarotti, Lady Gaga, and Kendrick Lamar of the ancient world the acknowledged sweet-singing master of words and music. During his lifetime, his fame spread around the Mediterranean and beyond. It was said that his pure voice and matchless playing could charm the beasts of the field, the fishes of the sea, and the birds of the air, and even the insensate rocks and waters. Rivers themselves diverted their courses to hear him. 
Hermes invented the lyre, Apollo improved upon it, but Orpheus perfected it. It is agreed who his mother was, but there's less certainty about his father. Here we come to a theme that repeats in many variations in this age of heroes, that of double parenthood. Calliope, beautiful voice, the muse of epic poetry, was Orpheus's mother by the mortal, by a mortal, the Thracian king Egrus. But Apollo was believed to be Orpheus's father too, and Orpheus was quite a favorite of the god. In any case, young Orpheus romped with his mother and ate muse aunts on Mount Parnassus, and it was there that the doting Apollo presented his possible son with a golden lyre, which he personally taught him to play. Soon the prodigy's skills at the instrument exceeded even that of his father, the god of music. His character matched the sweetness of his playing and singing. He played for the love of music, and his song celebrated the beauty of the world and the glory of love. That is just a little bit from Stephen Fry's book, Heroes, a retelling of Greek mythologies. It continues where Mythos, which came out last year, ends off, ended off, and it continues, continues the retelling of Greek myths. Just when he introduce the next book before we have the ad, ad break. The, the book is called um, The Kingfisher's Secret. It's by Anonymous. Her code name is Kingfisher, her mission to seduce and marry a man of wealth and political influence. She must Now she must protect a terrifying secret. Who owns the most powerful man in the world? Spies, murder, and one of the biggest conspiracies of our time light the heart of this immersive thriller. We will be back with Anonymous's The Kingfisher Secret straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking books. The next book I've got is an American political thriller. It's called The Kingfisher Secret. It's by Anonymous. It is supposed to be quite explosive, but I think it's far more fun than explosive. Now, because it's about the American, uh, a fictional American president, but with very, very strong connections to uh, the current American president and his first wife, uh, or one of his wives. I want to actually read what the Washington Post said about this book. The Washington Post is the daily, the prestigious daily newspaper of the capital of America. So if there's a book like this, which is supposed to be making big allegations. It's interesting to see what Washington, D.C.'s uh, newspaper of records said about it. Ron Charles, who is the editor of the, the, the book section of the Washington Post, says the following. Once the president's porn star lover has compared his anatomy to a toadstool, is there anything left to reveal? That, in a nutshell, is a great is the great challenge facing anyone hoping to disclose some new detail about Donald Trump. Despite the president's relentless efforts to silence and discredit his former cronies and paramours, overexposure has worked entirely to his advantage. Every damning, humiliating, and incriminating revelation simply blurs into the ever-rising din of ignominy. Sexual assault, collusion with dictators, tax evasion... Milk stays fresh longer than a Donald Trump scandal nowadays. This is political victory not through vindication, but through exhaustion. One indication of how tired we've grown is marked by the sheer irrelevance 
of the anonymous Ramona Cliff. In 1996, when primary colours lampooned Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, the novel set off a wit hunt in Washington, who, we all wondered, could have could know such hilarious details about the inner workings of the tightly controlled Clinton machine. Answer, in that case, anonymous was Joe Klain. Two decades later, here comes The Kingfisher's Secret, an anonymous novel about how the KGB engineered Donald Trump's ascent to the White House. The publisher claims the author is a respected writer and former journalist whose identity is being kept secret in order to protect the source of the ideas that inspired this novel. That's a Trump-worthy fib. The author's identity is being kept secret only to create a ripple of interest in this thriller, a thriller that can't compete with the news we've been reading about Donald Trump for the past three years. According to The Kingfisher Secret, Russia's efforts to disrupt American democracy at the highest levels began in the late 1960s, when a pretty athlete named Elena was plucked from Czechoslovakia for an elite spa program. To ensnare the proudest, most ambitious, most aggressive men in the Western world. Elena and her attractive classmates were trained in etiquette and music, fashion, movies, how to walk and how to eat, and this had shocked her how to make love. The goal of the program was achingly simple. The narrator explains with aching simplicity to encourage and create agents of disorder and chaos in America, to use democracy as a weapon against itself. Over the years, Elena's KGB handers moved her from one promising man to another until she finally caught the eye of an egotistical car manufacturer named Anthony Craig. She had never met a man more confident yet so lacking in confidence, the narrator says. Despite infusions of cash from his father, Craig still managed to drive his business toward bankruptcy, at which time Elena helped facilitate a crucial foreign investment. If you're having any trouble figuring out who Craig is supposed to be, the author tells us that he's a poor businessman but a brilliant marketer. When he turns to politics, he knows how to appeal to white, resentful, disenchanted, disenfranchised and indebted Americans. So much winning. In alternating chapters, whiffs of this dastardly plot come to the attention of Grace Elliott just weeks before the 2016 presidential election that could put Craig in the White House. Grace is a reporter for the National Flash, a tabloid newspaper that's already bought and buried her story about one of Craig's porn star lovers. Undaunted, Grace becomes convinced that her next expose about Craig's ex-wife, Elena, could turn the election, but before she can publish the truth, uh, but, but only if she can publish the truth before Russian agents kill her. There's a wee bit of fun in the way various real-life characters are recast in, this, in the book Kingfisher Secrets. Stormy Daniels becomes Violet Rain, for instance, and Ivana Trump is obviously the reluctant agent Elena. We don't see much of Anthony Craig, but when he appears struggling to keep his mop of hair in place, the author mimics Donald Trump's bombastic rhetoric with uncanny accuracy. We invented luxury, he tells the crowd in New York. We did that. It never existed before us. This is American political thrillers. Lots and lots of fun. But whoever Anonymous might be, he, he has a difficulty trying to match a fictional Donald Trump to the real Donald Trump. And if you like your thrillers a little bit crazy, 
a little bit uh, conspiracy theory, but where the book you're reading is able to reflect the headlines in the newspapers today at the same time as enjoying yourself, look out for The Kingfisher Secret by Anonymous. It is available in shops right now. It is just a lot of fun. Don't take it too seriously. It's a lot of great fun. Next book, we're going to talk about uh, a memoir. The memoir called Small Fry. It's written by Lisa Brennan Jobs. And the second part of her surname, it's a da- double barrel surname, the second part of her surname tells us why she's written a memoir. She is Steve Jobs' daughter. When Lisa Brennan Jobs, eldest child of the late Steve Jobs, was three years old, her parents went to court over her father's refusal to pay child support. Jobs denied paternity and declared in a deposition that he was sterile. After a DNA test showed they were in fact father and daughter, he agreed to pay her mother, Chris Ann Brennan, who was his high school sweetheart, $500 a month. A few days later, Apple became a public company and Jobs' net worth shot up overnight to $200 million. Relating this tale in her memoir, Lisa Brennan Jobs doesn't berate to make excuses for her father. As the founder of Next and co-founder of Apple, Jobs enjoyed enormous power in his working life. At home, he exerted power by withholding things, money, conversation, affection. Nowadays, his behavior would be seen as abusive. But for Brennan Jobs, it was normal. It was simply what her father did. The title of this memoir comes from Jobs' nickname for his daughter, Small Fry, a term of endearment that demonstrated he was capable of warmth when the mood took him. He was mostly absent until she was eight, when he began dropping by her mother's house in Palo Alto to take Lisa roller skating. Grateful as she was for his attention, she remained uncomfortable in his presence, fearful of irritating him or overstepping the mark. Throughout the book, she depicts herself as an outsider whose relationship with her dad was characterized by confusion and shame. For him, she says, I was a blot on a spectacular ascent, as our story did not fit with the narrative of greatness and virtue he might have wanted for himself. My existence ruined his streak. Small Fry, the book, isn't about eliciting sympathy or seeking revenge. Instead, Lisa Brennan Jobs tries to get to the bottom of a relationship mired in awkwardness and unpredictability. In exposing her father's more unpleasant traits, her language betrays her trepidation. Not given to drama or sentimentality, it is sparse though precise. The more shocking the anecdote, the more economical her description, though her, though her wounds are clear. There are only fleeting references to Jobs' working life. This is, after all, Brennan Jobs' memoir, not a biography of her father. As well as chronicling her early life, it is a lesson in how our identity and self-esteem are moulded by those charged with the task of raising us. Rejection and frustration are running themes. Lisa Brennan Jobs' mother is depicted as nurturing, creative and free-spirited, but also given to frightening outpourings of bitterness at their circumstances. I don't want this life, she once screamed in the car in front of her four-year-old daughter. I want out. I'm sick of living. While Jobs could be funny and perceptive, more often he was severe and condescending. 
Long after his paternity was proven, he would tell people that Lisa wasn't really his child and that his existence in her life was an act of charity. He would decide not to pay for things at the last minute, walking out of restaurants without paying the bill, and told his daughter, then nine, that she would never get a penny from him. In her teens, as her relationship with her mother became fractious, he invited his daughter to live with him and his wife, Laureen, and their baby son, on the condition that she didn't see or speak to her mother, Chris Ann, for six months. Lisa Brennan Jobs hoped that living with him would allow her to get to know him better, which in many ways it did. After years of neglect, he now became mean and controlling. When she became involved in after-hour school projects, he felt aggrieved at her absence. If you want to be a part of this family, you need to put in the time, he would say, and then ignore her for days. He would also grope Laureen, his wife, in front of her. When Lisa got up to leave on one such occasion, he stopped her. Hey, Lisa, he said, stay here. We're having a family moment. Hers is, of course, a one-sided account, one that has been backed by her mother, but staunchly rejected by her stepmother and her aunt, the writer Mona Simpson. In memoirs, as in life, one person's fact is often another's fiction. Lisa Brennan Jobs doesn't emerge smelling of roses either, even from her own memoir. She is fitfully cruel to her mother. She steals $100 bills from Jobs' bedroom as a teenager and compulsively pinches trinkets from his house as he lies dying. In his final days, he asks her if she's going to write about him. No, she replies. Her father has really has really been portrayed as a saint, but small fry reveals him as a man capable of startling selfishness and cruelty to those closest to him. Given all she endured, who could begrudge his daughter the last word? So that's the book Small Fry, a memoir by Lisa Brennan Jobs, a frank, smart and captivating memoir by the daughter of Apple founder Steve Jobs. So up till now, the books that we've looked at, Kate Atkinson's Transcription, Heroes by Stephen Fry, The The Kingfisher Secret by Anonymous, and Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs. The next book we're going to look at, we'll keep with nonfiction, is a book called the, um, the Perils of Perception, which is a fascinating study into general, general ignorance. We are wrong about most things. That may be a bitter pill to swallow, but as The Perils of Perception by Bobby Duffy proves, it's true. This book is an intriguing study of ju- into just how ignorant our society is. It draws on 100,000 interviews from 40 countries. The conclusion, we should be afraid, very afraid about how little we actually know. Bobby Duffy is the managing director of the Ipsos Mori Social Research Institute and works at King's College in London. Duffy is a man who has quizzed many people on basic facts. These studies were conducted online, so there may be some questions about whether these samples are truly representative. But as Duffy proves, internet usage is actually much more common than we think. It is one of the many ideas he challenges us on, 
forcing a revaluation of our own often deeply held beliefs. In this book, Duffy is mining the same kind of territory that Hans Rosling and his family covered and his family covered in their book Factfulness. What all of these researchers found was that, irrespective of education level, most people fail multiple choice tests about various facts. It could be that the level of worldwide inequality, or about immigration rates, or the facts could be about the incidence of obesity. Rosling even went on to compare the results from humans with the random answers from monkeys. He may be loath to admit it, but the animals came out on top. Duffy uses his book to describe how our perceptions are distorted. He says that this happens through a prism of how we think and what we're told. The former, how we think, includes our critical skills in mathematics, statistics, and our ability to reason well. This latter variable, what we are told, encompasses what we are presented through the media by politicians and others in positions of power. Humans have a tendency to seek out information that confirms their own existing views. This is also known as confirmation bias and is taught to anyone studying Psychology 101. Our prejudices are further exacerbated online where algorithms filter our content, meaning our pre-existing thoughts are constantly reaffirmed and we're not exposed to new thoughts. We humans also find it difficult to perceive slow, positive change. This is a good coping mechanism because it means we aren't overloaded with information, but this also results in our tendency towards more negative notions and extremes. The media also often fail to report on the small incremental changes taking place in the world, making the world a better place. Instead, they are more likely to highlight an attention-grabbing story or factoid. This is becoming worse in our post-truth world. This book, Perils of Perception is a fascinating one which breaks down all of our mistakes. The content is rich and includes many things we should all be mindful of. Throughout the book, Duffy, Bobby Duffy, offers plenty of practical examples along with the ramifications of our misjudgments. In the case of obesity, it can be detrimental to our health as people ignore this growing issue. For anti-vaccinators, who disregard the science and information about their debunked claims, it means they continue to spread misinformation. Sometimes that can result in fatalities. Duffy's work is easy to read and will help us better comprehend human weaknesses with respect to perceptions. The topics are presented in an interesting way and are supported by colorful graphics. It is heartening to know that we are all susceptible to these mistakes. But thanks to people like Bobby Duffy, all is not lost because their book, his book, helps guard us away from the path of general ignorance. So that is The Perils of Perception by Bobby Duffy. It's published by Atlantic Books and it is also available now. From two non-fiction books, one small fry memoir by Lisa Brennan Jobs and then The Perils of Perception by Bobby Duffy, we're going to move on to fiction. The next book is called Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin. Abigail Tartelin's previous book was called Golden Boy. It came out about three or four years ago, and it was about a transgender boy. It was a very clever book. She dealt with a very 
complicated topic, topic that's becoming more and more apparent in the world. Media activists are taking uh, are taking transgenders and making it far more uh, bringing it to everyone's you know society's awareness. The new book is her new book. Abigail Tartelin's new book is called Dead Girls. When her best friend Billy is found murdered, 11-year-old Thera, fearless and forthright, considers it her duty to find the killer. Aided by a Ouija board, Billy's ghost and the spirits of four other dead girls, she is determined to succeed. The trouble with Thera, though, is that she doesn't always know when to stop, and sometimes there's a fine line between doing the right thing and doing something very, very bad indeed. We'll be back with Abigail Tartelin's Dead Girls straight after this break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing novels. We've got four novels to discuss before the end of the show. All of them thrillers. The first one is a domestic thriller, Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin. Abigail Tartelin's Dead Girls isn't the only book dedicated to murdered and missing girls that have come out over the last few months, but it is one of the most visceral and hard-hitting. According to UNICEF, an adolescent girl dies a violent death every 10 minutes. That's a staggering statistic, and it gives this novel greater weight and significance. When her best friend, Billy, goes missing, 11-year-old Thera Wilde watches as her neighborhood and the police search their small town. She knows Billy better than anyone, and she's determined to find her dead or alive. So when she discovers Billy's lifeless body in their hidden hiding place, Thera believes it's her duty to catch the killer. With the help of a supernatural book and automatic writing, Thera calls out to her dead friend and the spirits of five murdered girls appear, first as black dogs, then as their living forms, and Billy is one of them. An 11-year-old playing at detective was never going to end well, and fueled by the link she has with the dead girls, Thera is hell-bent on getting justice for them all. She has difficulty listening to authority figures, but she does listen to the whispers about Billy, what her parents and friends have heard on the news about how she was killed. She hears the word pervert, and suddenly in her mind all boys have the potential to be evil, and all men are murderers and rapists. Theory is too young to rationalize that not all men are evil, and she is suspicious of every male figure around her, including her father and a local boy she befriends, Nathan. Unlike many crime novels, it's impossible to guess what's going to happen at the end of Dead Girls when you start reading it. The story is a thought-provoking one, and the book is an unflinching murder mystery with paranormal elements that have far greater consequences than Thero, indeed the reader, could have imagined. Abigail Tartelin explores what can happen when young and impressionable minds are overexposed to disturbing imagery and news, which is a very important theme for parents to take awareness of in the current oversaturated media world that we're living in. But it's as much about the dead girls of the title as it is about their unexpected young saviour. Reading the dead girls' written account of their abductions and assaults is particularly tough going, 
and you can see how their stories affect Thera as the novel progresses. She loses all sense of what's right and wrong, not comprehending what justice and the justice not comprehending that justice and the justice system don't always work in tandem, even though they should and would in a perfect world. Tartan's writing is stark and brutally visual, making Dead Girls the kind of disturbing novel that leaves you feeling emotionally exhausted by the end, despite being indicative of, of, of how a child might behave when they've witnessed something terrible and don't know how to deal with it. Thera's dogged attitude does great, does great a little bit at times, but books like Dead Girl aren't easy, light reading but with its blend of murder, mystery, and ghouly thrills, and also dealing with issues that do plague society. It'll keep you hooked until the very unexpected end. Do you think Dead Girls deserves a wider readership than it so far has managed to achieve? Abigail Tartelin is a young author who should be more widely read. Hopefully, I'm hoping that Dead Girls becomes her breakout novel and that people now know Abigail Tartelin as an author and to look out for her books. Next book, The Last Brother by Andrew Gross. Andrew Gross started out his writing career as a ghostwriter for um, James Patterson. After a few books, he went on his own and... He's written a number of World War II books, um, The One Man, uh, um, One, Mile, One Mile Under. He's become a, a best-selling author in his own right. His latest book is called The Last Brother. The story of Morris Rabishevsky, the hero of this novel, is based on the life of Fred Pomerantz the greatly revered grandfather of the author. Pomerantz was born in New York in 1902 into a poor Jewish migrant family. He left school at the age of 12 to learn the garment trade and rapidly worked his way up the ladder and eventually founded the Leslie Fay Company named after his daughter. It was a fascinating period of history. The garment industry in New York at the time was dominated by the Jewish mob in cahoots with the Italian mafia. The Jewish mob controlled the clothing manufacturing unions and ruthlessly exploited both employers and employees. Yet, Pomerantz, that's Andrew Gross's grandfather, was a man of integrity and toughness who not only survived but prospered in this environment. No wonder then that Pomerantz was the inspiration for the protagonist of Andrew's new novel, Morris Rabishevsky. In a compelling matter-of-fact style, Gross evokes Morris's boyhood and his need to earn money for his family from an early age. He is a character eager to do well and work hard. As Morris lives in a dangerous environment, he learns to look after himself, even if it means getting into fights he would rather avoid. A short spell in the army helps to further toughen Morris up, also giving him a taste of the anti-Semitism rife in the army. Morris starts work in the garment trade. His employer says, Rabishevsky is a fine Russian name, but it's a mouthful for some people here. What if we call you Rob? The newly renamed Morris is a quick learner and fast 
masters the art of cutting cloth to maximize profits. This gets him promoted and eventually leads him to start his own garment manufacturing company. He persuades one of his brothers to join him and names the company Rob Brothers. Meanwhile, his oldest brother is a charming ne'er-do-well who would rather hang out with friends who appear to be connected to the Jewish mob. Morris meets and marries an upper-class young woman, Ruthie, She is charming and intelligent and can sense what a wonderful person this tough, uneducated man is. They have a daughter named Leslie, and sometime later another daughter, Lucy, and a son called Samuel. By this time, the Raab brothers' business is profitable and selling clothing lines named after their daughters. Having family responsibilities and a growing profitable business makes Morris more vulnerable. In his world, gangsters bribe the police and those in power to overlook the unspeakable behaviour. Arson and murder are weapons used to force businesses to pay financially crippling protection money and to force employees to pay high union dues which go into the gangster's own pockets. How Morris reacts to all this and how the few honest people in law enforcement, like Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey, help to combat the Jewish mob and other gangsters leads to the exciting climax of the novel. The Last Brothers by Andrew Gross is one of those blockbuster novels that can be read for its thrill a minute entertainment value. It has a fast-moving plot and an array of fascinating characters, not least some of the leading criminals of the time. An additional bonus for the reader is that the novel is a convincing recreation of a period of American history that should not be forgotten. So that's The Last Brother by Andrew Gross, published by Macmillan. It is also available now. He is a, a best-selling author. It's, it's really a good read. The next book we're going to look at, straight after this ad break, is called Moscow Midnight by John Simpson. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The book I just mentioned before the ad break, Moscow Midnight by John Sampson, published by John Murray. The reason John, sorry, John Simpson, the reason John Simpson's name caught my eye when I saw this book originally was that he's been the BBC's world affairs editor for more than half his 52-year career. In his time with the BBC, he has reported on major events all over the world. He was made a CBE in the Gulf War Honours List in 1991. He has twice been the Royal Television Society's Journalist of the Year and has won three BAFTAs, a News and Current Affairs Award and an Emmy. He lives in Oxford. So we've got someone who's at the very, very top of the news media establishment. And he's written a thriller. And it involves a lot of the different things that we see on our television screens, on the news, or in newspapers or news magazines. The book starts with the discovery of an MP, a British MP, Patrick McCready, is found dead in his flat. The coroner rules it as an accident, an accidental death, a really weird sex game gone wrong. Now, this is something that happens in the media, in the news that's reported, that a British politician or could be a wealthy person is found dead in a weird type of a sex game that's gone wrong. Now, the MP, Patrick McCready, whose death starts off the novel, has a friend, who he had a friend, 
an old school journalist, a print media journalist, John Swift. He's Irish, he lives in London, he travels around the world reporting on big stories, small stories. He works in a media company that is experiencing all the challenges of 21st century print media journalism. Internet's killing off the, the, the industry. You have to work harder and harder to keep your job. The, the boss or the managers are looking to cut down the employment lists so that they don't have to pay so many journalists. He has to work hard just to justify his job in this newspaper. And he feels that his friend's death is way too suspicious just to be reported on the news and passed over. He starts to suspect that there is Russian influence in the British government and that possibly his friend's death was not an accidental death, but the Russians framing his friend, the MP, because Patrick McCready was investigating Russian arms deals. And this is the beginning of Moscow Midnight. Now, the whole idea of Russian, in Russian meddling in other countries' politics is also a very real story that is being reported in the news media. And one of the previous books we discussed today, The Kingfisher's Secret, was about the same idea. So we have a whole lot of real issues all spun around and put into a novel that reads pretty well. Something else that Moscow Midnight has that really also makes it just that more enjoyable for a South African reader is that John Simpson's, uh, sorry, the John Swift, the, the, the journalist in the book, John Swift's cameraman is an Afrikaner from South Africa who really is this big, tall, silent Afrikaner type. Uh, all the South Africanisms that uh, this character speaks out are very, very real. Then there's also the, the dead MP Patrick McCready's girlfriend, a Russian lady, who has lived most of her life in the UK. All of these things mixed together to create a really entertaining but also hard-hitting and could be plucked from the headlines novel. Uh, and in the story, John Swift gets an interview with President Putin. So he goes off to Russia to interview the Russian Prime Minister, the Russian President, and it's this really interesting scene as well, where this whole sense of the state, the, Rus the Russian state, and how it's been taken over by a KGB thug also comes through the pages very, very well. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable, but also for someone like me who's like I'm a news junkie, it's a type of book that gives you the a peek behind the news media's the facade that we see. So that is Moscow Midnight by John Simpson, published by John Murray. The other books that we reviewed today, Andrew Gross, The Last Brother, set in New York in the, 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 the Schmatters industry, the, the garment district. Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin. 
Small Fry, The Memoirs by Steve Jobs' daughter Lisa Brennan Jobs, and then The Perils of Perception by Bobby Duffy, How Little We Actually Know, Kingfisher Secret by Anonymous, that's uh, also a, a political thriller, but that's set in America, and really more fun and comedy than anything serious, Kate Atkinson's Transcription, and then Stephen Fry's two books last year's Mythos, The Foundation Mythologies of Ancient Greece, and this year's Heroes, which is the story of the humans, the great heroes of ancient Greece. And that's the full show for today. Next week, hopefully we'll have two interviews, one with Anthony Horowitz, the author of the Alex Ryder Children's Series, and a number of adult books. Most recent one uh, has just come out right now. The the book is, the, the sentence is death. And he had a previous book out earlier this year, Forever in a Day, a continuation of the James Bond story. And also we'll be interviewing Vanessa Raffaele, a big name in South African magazines and the author of a debut author her book is called plus one so that's for next week until then look us up on facebook like the page go to facebook search for people of the book on 101.9 fm follow what we've been discussing on the show until then good shabbos and keep reading